one of the, the common outcomes is affecting people's sleep, increasing experiences of anxiety and fear. I had witnessed him uh, attempting to take his life. 29% of black women in any one week would report a common mental health disorder. And I remember at the time being really shocked. You know, bullying still exists. I see it. People confide in me that it happens a lot. It feels like we've come a long way in the past few years with a big push from mental health charities, celebrities and campaigners to raise awareness of these issues and get us talking about what's going on in our heads. But then the COVID-19 pandemic hit us with a blow not just to our physical health, but also a complete upheaval in our daily lives and a knock-on effect on many people's mental health. Throughout the world, COVID has exacerbated the pressures of work, income and balancing family life. So today we're going to look at how our jobs are affecting our mental health. We'll explore the different pressures of a range of industries and ask who is most at risk and why, and as ever, figure out some solutions. How can we make sure our minds stay healthy on the job? Welcome to the Global Safety Podcast from Lloyd's Register Foundation. So let me introduce today's panel. We have Sandra Kerr, CBE, who is Race Equality Director at Business in the Community. Dr. Olivia Swift, Senior Program Manager at Lloyd's Register Foundation. Neil Laybourne, Mental Health and Wellbeing Speaker and the subject of the Channel 4 documentary Stranger on the Bridge. We'll hear that story in a moment. And Carlo Caponecchia, an academic focusing on human factors and safety and also president of the International Association on Workplace Bullying and Harassment, who joins us from Sydney, Australia. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining me. First, if we could just hear from you, Neil, I know this is a story which you are familiar with and some may be out there, but it gets no less poignant the more times I hear it. For the benefit of those who don't know your story, would you mind telling me how you got involved in mental health? Um, <clears throat> so on that particular day, uh, if, I, if I take you back, it's the 14th of January 2008 and cold, horrible, <laughs> miserable rainy day in London, as we've all experienced. And like me and everybody else on the bridge, I was just trying to get to work as quick as possible. And, you know, my day got interrupted by the vision of this guy sitting on the side of the railings and, you know, freezing cold in jeans and a T-shirt. Um, yeah, seconds away from, from uh, going into the Thames and... I had witnessed him uh, attempting to take his life on Waterloo Bridge on the way to work and and I, I stopped and spoke and, and we talked. Um, I then introduced myself and uh, there started a conversation. Neither of us uh, were expecting to collide that day and um, it was all... It was all haphazard, it was all instinctive, it was all just very in the moment. But the conversation lasted nearly half an hour and... Uh, we were eventually um, the police came and intervened, and and um, <clears throat> I, I genuinely thought in that moment I would never see that that guy again. Uh, it's one of these one of these moments you have in life. And um, lo and behold, six years later, after that interaction, this this guy Johnny had made this amazing recovery, which, by the way, is not that common with his diagnosis. And I can talk about that a bit later. Uh, schizophrenia. Um, 
you know, it's not that common to make the recovery he did. And when he felt better, he wanted to reach out. He wanted to find this person who had stopped in that day and say thank you. And uh, luckily, I was still kicking around London. I was running a, I was running a, a fitness business in Covent Garden, and I, I saw the campaign. Uh, my name's Neil, but he thought my name was Mike, so it was dubbed the Find Mike campaign. So it, globally, it trended on Twitter, and everybody was looking for Mike. <laughs> so that wasn't a great start, but uh, somehow cutting through the noise, I, yeah, I realised it was me, and I came forward. And and like I said, that moment that we met for the second time in 2014, which was the ending to the to the documentary Stranger on the Bridge. Uh, was caught on camera and it was re- it was really powerful and it was the catalyst for me starting to understand mental health in a way that I'd never had done before. And since then you've been working in this area have you d- doing what? I convene conversations I try and learn as much as I can through the collaborations that I work on in mental health whether that's a an ambassador relationship with a mental health charity whether it's collaborating through uh, an event that gathers people together, whether it's a podcast like this where I can use the Stranger on the Bridge, Bridge story to have a conversation about suicide, to normalise that conversation. It's to continually, um, continually advance that conversation, to keep learning and then to keep, keep those ideas circulating. Right. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for that. And it is still a very, very striking story. Well, let's broaden out to a, a question that I'd like really to everybody to get a response to. Um, the five day, 40 plus hour working week that was the kind of norm where most of us went into a workplace up until a year and a half ago um, and you know spent a good deal of time there. Is that sort of rigorous structured work 40 hours plus is it good or bad for our our mental health Sandra Kerr first of all I have to say that I think that that is the past I think people have many have moved into multiple kind of different rhythms new ways of working we've had to because times have changed Um, and we know that there is research that you know I think it's 41 percent of employees saying that actually um, I feel that my work is contributing to my stress and mental health. So I think it's time to treat workers as adults beyond. So let's focus on the outputs and provide clarity and enable those, you know, who wants to work in the middle of the night, who wants to work in the afternoon, who wants to do the morning to do that as long as customer service is maintained, we produce all the outputs that you need and then allow people to work from coffee shops, from the park. Who cares? As long as they're delivering great customer service and great outputs. Carlo Caponecchia, what do you think? Do you think this kind of structured, you know, 40 hour plus a week is, is, a, is a problem necessarily? I think it's really about horses for courses and finding out what works for different people in different jobs. There might be some jobs in some industries that need that kind of structure. And there might be some people who prefer that kind of structure as well. Um, But as Sandra was saying, it's about choice and control. We know that a lack of control is one of the most important stressors at work. One of the things that organisations are supposed to do is think about ways of providing people with additional control over how they work, when they work, where they work. Um, And now there's no excuse. We've proven that we can do it. And so 
being able to afford people flexibility and the opportunity to make choices, as Sandra said, um, is, a, is a really important way of improving um, your mental health strategy. I get the feeling that control and choice is going to be a key factor in whether in this whole you know mental health argument is whether you kind of feel empowered or you 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 feel pushed around. That's right, but but we know that giving people more control also makes them more satisfied, more committed, likely more productive. Um, so it's kind of a win-win. Olivia, what do you think about the, uh, the, the sort of formatted week as it was at least until a couple of years ago? So we know that working way too much is obviously bad for everyone. So there have to be limits that are statutory. But with but beneath that, then flexibility is absolutely key. And, you know, Carla's also right that different types of work affect different types of people in different ways in terms of happiness and well-being. So it's obviously not as black and white as, as, as the questions posed. Um and the other, I suppose the other point I'd really keen, be keen to make is that, um, of course, we're talking about formal workplaces here and in parts of the world where we're privileged enough to be able to have these kinds of conversations. But even in our own lives, speaking for myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lone parent, work full time. My labour isn't just the work I do for my organisation, it's everything else I do. So for me, in terms of well-being, the question is the whole picture. It's like how... How am I managing all the different types of work I do? Similarly, for an informal worker in some part of the world, doing a very different type of work to the work I do, you know, it's the same question. It's the whole person's work and where the responsibility lies um, for their well-being in relation to those different aspects. Carlo, in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, maybe, once again, up to up to pre-COVID, how had the pressures in the workplace changed in relation to, to, to mental health? Some of the main changes, I think, were around technology. They're probably the ones that, that people are most aware of. So um, technology of always being able to be at work when you're not at work. So with phones and emails and teams and all the other programs that we can just get pinged on all the time now i think that's probably the most uh um, noticeable one and what that that should have been liberating but turned out to be rather imprisoning (laughs) yes yeah exactly um it should have enabled uh work to be done flexibly which it has in the last 18 months but what those things have done has been that uh workload has gone up so workload goes up, work pressure goes up, expectations go up uh, because you can always squeeze in that extra email. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. This is a, a bit of a sort of flyer thought from me. But in the same period that we've been talking about, in some respects, we've seen a power draining away from the working man and woman. We've seen less power for unions. We've seen, um, to some extent, sort of respect for the for the worker decrease. And we've seen that arguably manifested in a number of sort of political outcomes as well. I'm wondering if alongside, you know, control being, having some kind of control 
over your daily work helps your mental health. I'm wondering if also, you know, being respected as an important member of the workforce and society, whether that's important to your mental health as well. I don't know if uh, any, anybody wants to, to pick up that thought. Sandra? I think the next tug of war, to, to your point about respect, that I think we're moving into is the whole discourse and multiple discourses about what next? What are we doing next? What does the future look like? Are we going back to what was? Or are we actually going to listen to individuals? And I think really listening and actually enabling um, employers to have respect in that. (laughs) Actually, yes, you do have a life. You do matter. Your wholeness matters to me. So let's listen. And you have produced very well in the the last 18 months or whatever. your, your, Your productivity hasn't gone down. So let's talk about the future. So I think there is definitely something about respecting voice and contributions from employees. We've got to remember the whole zero hours economy in this as well, and 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 how there that growing form of work affects mental health. Uh, Olivia Carlo, there is a change in the social contract between uh, employers and employees, which predates COVID, but has been exacerbated by COVID. Um, in which the separation between work and the rest of life, which was always somewhat false anyway, um, has been blurred. It was blurred by technology. It's been blurred particularly by all of us uh, who now remote work. Um, It's very hard for managers to distinguish between work-related stress and home-related stress when we're in this sort of situation. And there's an increasing rhetoric around bringing your whole self to work which is great, but it's sort of interesting, you know, so we, workers may not have the sort of union presence and power that they had, but it's almost as if well-being and stress and words like that act as passwords to talk about what we expect of uh, our employers and employees. And it's a bit of a grey area because everything seems sort of softer and more accommodating, but at the same time, ultimately, we're still employed we still have contracts uh, to, to, you know, to give us chunks of our time to an organisation or whatever in that formal setup. So it can only go so far, you know. So I think we're in a transitional period, um, but there is there is a shift there. And, and just briefly, you obviously work in the, the maritime area yourself. Are, are there specific issues affecting maritime? Obviously, we, we saw some terrible thing for for uh, sailors during during COVID being being trapped on ships for months on end, but but generally, are there some pressures within within the uh, yeah the the ocean going industry? Um, the work is is dangerous and physically demanding, so it's extreme in that sense. But it's also very isolated socially. You're away from family and friends for a long time. The crews are often uh, multicultural and have limited cohesion. Um, of course, you can't leave work at the end of the day. There's a big issue with fatigue and workload and um, increasing bureaucracy. Um, seafarers are at risk of being criminalised for mistakes in a way that other workers aren't as e- exposed to. Um, bullying and harassment can be a problem at sea. Um, all sorts of other things. And that's, of course, painting a very negative scenario of seafaring. And there are many, many positives. And that is, you know, intentionally uh, provocative. But... You're right that they do face certain challenges, but it's the end of a spectrum. Uh, Carlo uh, Caponecchia, you, you have um, bullying, harassment sort of within your title, if you see what I mean, uh, examining that. Talk to me how, talk me through how that relates to, to mental health. We should remember, of course, that health is just health, right? Mental health is just part of health. 
one of the things I'd really like to see is us to to get to that point where we don't have to really talk about health and mental health, but we just talk about health. But how does bullying affect people's health? Well, we know there's a, a whole range of effects. It it one of the the common outcomes is affecting people's sleep, um, increasing experiences of anxiety and fear. People often have um, behaviours around avoidance. Um, interestingly, one of the most common symptoms is people feeling nauseous on the way to work. I know that seems strangely specific, but it comes up so often. People get headaches. They can start um, using alcohol and other drugs more. Neil, I wanted to pick up that point that Carlo made about health being health. I mean, you came from the you know the physical health the background. You were in the, running gyms. You presumably see that see that uh, continuum pretty clearly. Yes, absolutely. I think if you take that environment, when somebody walks into the door of a gym, then you're met instantly with a positive connotation about your physical health. You're not shown, you're not invited to have conversations about the worst case scenario. Um, People aren't people aren't talking about they do talk about the problems they need to fix, but they ultimately talk more. I found in, in the fitness environment, people talk uh, more weighted towards the attainment to where they want to get to. Let, let me just visualize that, okay? Because I'm talking about fitness, the six pack, the you know the the L, the um, the dress that they want to wear, you know, fitting in the suit, you know, losing the spare tire, and you know, I don't know. There, there's 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 such a I can do this. I've walked in here. I can do this. I can get there in 12 weeks. I can get there in 14 weeks. Um, Olivia, I was going to come to you anyway, but yeah, uh, do make a point. One of the other things that's changed over time, um, and again, probably exacerbated during COVID as well, is that leadership, good leadership is now recognised to include the softer skills, the that openness, the ability to uh, bring that out in others and so forth. So I think that's one thing that's definitely changed, which is great. And then also in relation to physical and mental health and wanting to just talk about health, I'd really also like to see that in the space of occupational safety and health practice in workplaces. So for Lloyd's Register Foundation and for Lloyd's Register Group, that really is a goal that uh, psychological well-being is as much a part of health and safety as physical health. I can see everyone on the panel nod, nod, nodding at that, which is really interesting, so that it and and I know from working within big organizations that you know everything gets a health and safety assessment on it everything that I do pretty much and so there should but but none of that really is about mental well-being at the moment is it I mean there is an obligation in relation to mitigating and managing stress uh, but I'll let Carly pick up yeah there in in various jurisdictions and in, in different parts of the world there are different legal obligations around not just supporting people who maybe experiencing mental ill health, but preventing the scenarios, the, the contributing factors that might relate to those outcomes. But um, the other thing is that uh, we have some really important developments in about making sure that mental health, psychological health is part of occupational health and safety. So we have a new international standard um, on this, on psychological health at work. Um, ISO 45003, I know the, the numbers are not always very useful, but it's a new international standard on psychological health that puts a real focus on making sure that psychological health is embedded in the 
in the normal safety management system that organisations already have. So it's it's really getting it embedded in everyday practices. And these ISO things, although they're international, they do matter, do they? They do kind of filter down into individual companies in individual countries. They do, because while you don't have to comply with the standard, a lot of organisations find that in order to get work, in order to get a work contract, there's a contractual obligation to use those and, and, and abide by those standards. So they're actually very important. Now, Olivia, Lloyd's Register Foundation recently funded a report by Nottingham Trent University, I think, looking at uh, psychological well-being at work in five crucial sectors. Can you tell me what you found? So we know it's well documented that productivity benefits from good uh, psychological well-being, but there's less out there on the impact on safety of either poor mental health or good mental health. So we wanted to look at uh, five key sectors relating to critical infrastructure, which were maritime, energy, construction, engineering, food and digital. So quite uh, diverse in some ways. And to examine the, the policy literature, the academic literature, to see what the consensus was around that relationship. Um, and I think the key thing to say is that it's not actually the nature of the work itself. So it's not about how dangerous or physically demanding it is. It's about how workers feel about the work they do. Um, and we talk in those terms around psychological, uh, psychosocial factors, which are how different individuals in the workplace feel about different things that are not structural per se. They're, they're things like job security and satisfaction, workloads, lack of control, which we've talked about previously, unclear communication, repetitive work, stuff like that. And each type of work has its own set of psychosocial factors. So they're not the structural things, but they arise from structural things. So the way that work is organised, the human factors, the expected behaviours, that's what give rise to these sorts of uh, psychosocial factors that are what influence how we feel about work. They in turn influence what we do, and safety outcomes, they pr produce a safety climate and that then feeds back. You have a, basically a continuous feedback loop. And, and interestingly, you, you weren't by any means confined to, to office sector. In fact, quite the reverse. An awful lot of these are more, more physical jobs, more site-based jobs, be they engineering, food, uh, construction and things like that. Did you feel, I'm interested to know whether you felt that the different sectors, could they teach each other anything? Did you feel there were some things that maybe the the office sector was getting right or the construction sector was getting right? Is there some, are there some learnings here? I mean, obviously construction is very hot on health and safety. Um, I'm just wondering if that has any other, you know, well, as I say, can one sector learn from another? It's always important from, for sectors to work from other sectors. Maritime likes to learn from aviation, for example, right? So we know that a holistic long-term approach works. We have to get buy-in of people in the organisation, that getting the basics right is important. Uh, thank you for that, Olivia. Now we're going to hear from BBC Radio 1's medical and well-being expert, Dr Rada, with some insights from her work as a doctor and mental health campaigner. So when we're talking about our mental health and well-being, um, there are so many different elements that feed into that. So there are things like joy and hope and gratitude, but there's also purpose. And I think purpose is a really, really huge one because purpose basically drives us. It's 
what gets us out of bed in the morning, it's what takes us through difficult times, takes us through times of challenge or disillusionment in the world. If we can find our purpose and our reason for being here and our reason to get out of bed and our reason to do something, then actually we're more likely to carry on doing it and to persevere through those times. To me, purpose really is about stepping back and thinking to yourself, what brings me joy? What makes me light up? What um, brings me fulfillment? What really makes me want to just get out of bed? Um, it's a dynamic thing. It changes through our lives and our purpose will change according to our circumstances and what's going on with our lives and what we experience. But I think holding on to it, no matter what, whatever it is, is actually really important to give us structure, keeps us going. And really also it helps us be more of ourselves in the world. And we'll hear a little bit more from Dr. Rada later on. But now let's address that 18-month-old elephant in the room that is COVID that hopefully won't live for a great deal longer. Um, uh, Sandra Kerr, what do you think the impact of it has been on, on people's mental health? So when I think specifically about ethnic minority community, you've heard about the disproportionate impact of deaths, contagion because of key workers. There's overrepresentation of black and Asian people in the NHS and social care and retail, all the frontline services. I think we've yet to see what the full impact has been um, because under the surface, we've touched on some of the, the challenges, but there are other disparities which have just been exacerbated. So, for example, if you're um, in a, a, how, how a high housing cost situation, your home you know, is unstable, or if you are in zero hours or, you know, kind of unstable work there. Um, and also if you're in lower paid work, so you don't have that kind of financial cushion in which to, so what if the prices go up a bit, we can kind of cope with it. So I think there's lots of, and we've seen in the media domestic violence, there's a whole range of uh, a kind of an echo, echoing and of, of impacts that we've yet to see. Um, the outcomes of and also something that's under the surface that isn't really talked about so we know schools have been you know they've been on they've been off and what's the impact on the parents as well as the the children and if your children have challenges you know that's something another thing that adults and the parents will have to to tackle and support so I think there's a lot of um invisible impacts that we don't know about yet. The key difference surely in the last 18 months has been this breakdown of the barrier between home and work that was maybe being filtered through a little bit in the previous years but the barrier got blown apart. Neil what do you think? Nothing strikes home to me more than the disparity of sectors that have the luxury of having a better ride with Covid now than every morning I look at my window because it just so happens I'm having some building work done on my house and on any given day I can have one two three or four five builders turn up I've been having conversations with them over the last six months of like the impact, like indirect conversations. And I, I'm, it's fascinating because I'm watching these guys who have no other choice but to do an operative job through the hours that their operation is open. They can't turn up earlier. They're not allowed to turn up later. And then I'm kind of trying to mirror that and thinking in my professional services world, on the other side of the wall... I'm sitting there with my laptop having the choice whether to put up with my noisy kids or the luxury of going down to a nice quiet cafe to do some work. Carlo Kapanekia, what, what I had observed within my largely office-based uh, work colleagues was that during COVID they felt less in control 
less appreciated and less able to turn off from work and that those three things together put their minds under greater stress and sometimes with i'd say ill health as a result is that common i think that's it's very common and uh my own experience of doing meetings all day back to back and not being able to get away from that computer because it's just a different way of working normally your meetings would be scheduled such that you had to physically move locations between meetings and you get a break because you've got to travel between them. So, so I think that is common, but um, I, I think we can often only think about the experience for the kinds of roles that we do. And we have to challenge ourselves to think as, as, uh, as Neil was saying about other sectors and how it works for other workers doing other roles and other tasks. Mm. But, th- but that's the thing I'm driving at. We haven't had a person physically next to us, a lot of us, for the last 18 months. And it seems to me that that is a critical part of our support. It may often be unspoken, but it was there. We quite enjoyed the, the office social and yes, I am talking about offices at the moment, but it's probably true on, on building sites. You work together with the same people a lot. The office social, it seems to me at least, was important for our mental health. And uh, I'm interested to know going forward, I'll start this with Olivia, whether you think we have to, when we think about how to build back after COVID, whether we have to think carefully about that support structure and what it delivered for us. We definitely need to consider the support going forward, the importance of actively encouraging social interactions and really importantly the importance of quality line management we know that that's a huge factor in uh well-being in relation to workplaces well sandra you are the race equality director for business in the community what impact what relevance does racism have when it comes to mental health in uh, 2017, when the then Prime Minister Theresa May kind of established this uh, race disparity unit, and they, they published a report in 2017 that said that 29% of black women in any one week would report a common mental health disorder. And that was from a survey that was run in 2014. And I remember at the time being really shocked at this stat and thing. Just let me jump in a moment. That that would be much higher, would it, than, than the national average? Yeah, it's um, it's it's 29%. So it's 21% for white women and 23 for Asian. So black women, you know, far and away higher than everybody else. So almost one in three. And when you think about, when I know that in the black community, there's kind of a taboo on mental health. So those are the ones who've actually gone and presented so um so this was something that was flagged and i knew it was a challenge and when i think about if that was pre-covid yes so that was 2014 and we know there's never been a campaign there's never been any focus to tackle or support women's mental health what would that the, the, the impact of covid um be doing now and just some things that you know we've been forced to think about is every time there's an economic downturn Black and Asian people are hit harder and it takes longer to recover. So, for example, when we had the crash in 20, 2008, in 2010, 60% of ethnic minority people had no savings at all. So think about this kind of disruption on income levels. And then when you think about, we talked about 
uh, unstable work, more likely to be in the lower, already at lower levels. So there's a huge kind of economic impact. And then particularly when, again, thinking about black women, for example, every time you hear in the media about some disparity where maybe a black male has been stopped and searched or something or tasered or whatever, remember they have mothers, sisters, aunts, cousins. So there is an invisible impact, an echo effect of when all of those disparities, you know, there's dis- there was a disparity on those who were fined and those who were arrested and, you know, those who, um, for, for even being out on COVID and, you know, even challenges around who's going to be sectioned. So there's a lot of invisible impacts. A, a lot of ethnic minorities, maybe particularly women, work in customer-facing jobs, transport, retail, stuff like that. Is there actually an, an issue of facing abuse and the effect that and the effect that can have on their mental health. Absolutely, and and one of the things I've noticed, and this was even pre COVID, but so I, I remember, and it's my job to notice, right? So that's why I would notice the transport and in the NHS there were posters, and sometimes in, in finance as well that they'd put up saying, "Don't you know abuse our staff, please don't." And the tubes, and I know through the data that we collect that those sectors have got. The highest, some of the highest levels of bullying and harassment. Surprisingly, education's in there too, um, which is interesting. Um, but the very fact that they, the employers, would put that, you know, put those posters online, put them in the public domain, is because they know there is a problem. So if you think about that happening to you because of something like ethnicity, which you're not going to change it, you didn't get to pick it either, so you're kind of trapped. And it is going to be what it is. And then if you think you're servicing customers and clients and that's your job and they you're, you're kind of experiencing um, bullying harassment from them, you know, there's a whole thing of being trapped. And I think that is, contributes to people, you know, mental health. If you feel like not only is this difficult, I can't even see a way out of this. And have you got a sort of toolkit you've been working on to, to mm. come up with some solutions here? Just briefly, if you yeah. could. Yeah, we, we um, received some funding. So our campaign was 25 years old last year. The Prince of Wales Foundation uh, gave us some money to work on a toolkit. So we worked with some psychologists, um, two black female psychologists, actually, because you were saying, well, if you're going to create a, well, a toolkit for ethnic minority women, let's get some women with a lived experience. And we put a, a toolkit for managers and one for individuals. So just something to help people with their own self-care, some ideas to think about. And it, it does come up with some practical ways that managers can help to kind of get their minds in the right headspace. And it does emphasise some of the words we've already heard here today about listening, um, giving voice, listening to understand and, and not having all the answers, but being willing to say, let's put our heads together and see what will work going forward. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Sandra. We're just going to hear again from uh, Dr. Rada with some more insights from her work as an NHS GP and a wellbeing campaigner. We've really got to widen out the conversation that we have in society about feelings because we still are living in this world of good and bad feelings and there are no such thing as good or bad feelings. There are, there are more challenging feelings to feel and there are feelings that we don't necessarily like feeling but they, to me they all have a purpose, they're all there for a reason. So for example, you know, if you're feeling anxiety, is that because something's going on at work? Is it because it's telling you that you need to get some more support or telling you that perhaps you're a little bit out of your depth or telling you that you haven't necessarily got as much self-belief as you should have for example so behind every feeling 
there's some kind of reason or story for it being there. So instead of pushing them away, pushing them down because we don't want to feel them, it's much better, much healthier and much more useful actually to sit with them, get support with them if you need to, but also just try to understand why they're there and try to work with them rather than against them. Well, we've heard a lot about some of the mental health issues and problems that can cause them or exacerbate them. Uh, now many businesses are training up mental health first aiders, which is good news. But uh, are, are we sort of framing it all wrong? Should we be sort of promoting you know, good mental health as a sort of almost a preventative thing rather than the thing that comes in um, only when there's a problem? Uh, Carlo? Absolutely. The focus should be on prevention. So it's great to do mental health first aid. But it's first aid. Somebody's already hurt. That's not where organisations are supposed to be working. Organisations have to control the sources of harm that they're responsible for, the sources of harm that are in their organisations, in their business, um, such that they don't cause people harm. So it takes a bit of a flip. We're really focused on the tertiary strategies and we need to push back and say yeah good good job nice first step but now think about the things that we were talking about around role conflict role ambiguity control workload better relationships better supervision um, bullying harassment of course career development professional development those are the kinds of things that organisations need to be focusing on as the way to start preventing these um, uh, negative effects on people. Neil, you meet a lot of these kind of organisations. Are, are they making this corner turn that Carlo would like to see? Oh, so many. You know, in three or four years, I've been in the private sector alone, been into about 300 organisations. I would see the same thing over and over again. I see somebody who is in charge of a budget, and they would say, we're going we're gonna to train 5,000 line managers across EMEA or something like that. And look, of course, that's great because you are providing some sort of blanket awareness, some scattergun approach that is hopefully going to filter down and help somebody who needs it. But at the same time, there's a pre-journey. That's what I uncovered quite early on, is there's a precursor to then the actual implementation of training, which you need to go through. And that's about culture building. We got invited in to talk about Stranger on the Bridge, a conversation about suicide. And then that would open up people saying, hey, do you know what? That, I've been affected like that, or my partner has been affected like that. I care about this. Luckily, I've seen the culture change in a lot of places. And like I said, it is the disparity between sectors. The professional service sector has been doing this kind of agenda for a lot of years, and they're getting it right most of the time. They, they're pretty good handle on how to look after well-educated people who make a graduate step into a professional service environment. To be honest, they kind of doing a good job of people and I think a bit of empowerment and a bit of you know weeding out I'm glad we've got bullying on this because you know bullying still exists I see it people confide in me that it happens a lot and hopefully as we replace you know the new leadership of tomorrow the authentic people that care and empathize bullying has no place and we're just left with um, understanding and empathy and non-judgment in our work conversations and that would be a great that you know that that would be a future that I would like to see in the workplace. But um, yes, companies spend a lot of money on training, and sometimes they get it wrong, and that's a shame.
Well, I've I've seen a figure. I think that um, uh, mental health problems. I think it's from the World Health Organization. Are reckoned to cost the global economy more than one trillion dollars each year. So it it really does suggest that getting on top of this is not only good for the individual but good for the business. Definitely, I think that's well documented. That those sorts of figures tend to be around the the cost of mental ill health. There's equally plenty of evidence around the 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 benefits of mental health. Well, look, um, I just want to wind up with with a couple of uh, uh, if I can get a brief answer from all of you. Um, um, can you, Sandra? First, can you give me uh, an example of is there one sort of single thing you'd like to see change? Something we need maybe in the next five or ten years that would really help in this space, Sandra? First of all, I mean, I'd like to see employers mainstream into the design of new ideas and have that question when they're going to introduce something. Is this, how is this going to impact on employee mental health? Is it going to be an impact? Ask the question. So I think if we could get that mentality to say, when we're going to introduce new things, we always pause and say, you know, when, when, is this going to, what's the effect going to be? You sort of carry out a mental health audit along with a financial audit and, and, and health and safety audit, indeed, of anything that you do. Yeah. Uh, Neil Laybourne, anything you'd like to see? I would like to draw out a company's approach to um, conversational training around understanding um, the, the people in the teams. And I think that would uh, that would help massively. I would love just to always emphasise deep and meaningful conversations happening in the workplace can transform a culture. And is that should that conversation be focused around some kind of mental health empathy? Is that the point? I don't think so. I think it's a conversation. Great question. I don't think people want to talk about their mental health all day, every day. I think it's a conversation about getting to know people. And then you feel like you're connected. And then, and then there's trust. And then when you have trust, people feel, hey, do you know what? I can receive that information because I trust that you'll bring it to me because you have to. And people feel like they can offload it and they can say, hey, I need to tell you this. And that is a journey. That, that is a journey. So the conversation is not about mental health. It's, hey, Tom, how are you? How many children do you have? What do you like to do at the weekends? You know, tell me, like, where do you buy your glasses? You know, it's, it's, it's these, we, where do we fit these into the working day? That's what we need to change. Uh, Olivia, anything you'd like to see? It's sort of dry, but the things I'd like to see change in order to get to that point are to do with the standards, the attempts at legislation, the uh, the better tools for workplace monitoring, better measuring practices, evaluation practices across organisations, so that when we offer the plethora of choice that we're advocating for how people work and when and so forth, that we're able to support that in the long term by showing that it works and where there are problems and addressing those proactively. Carlo, what would you like to see and would you like to pick up Olivia's point about law and regulation? Sure. Um, so I guess the, the main thing I'd like to see is a, a shift towards organisations viewing mental health or psychological health as part of their health, safety and wellbeing responsibilities and as something that they manage as part of that existing system. As Neil said, there are organisations doing some good things, but we'd never hear about it. And that reduces our opportunity to learn from that. It never forms part of the record, if you like. And so encouraging a little bit more openness to to be brave and say, we did these things um, to improve 
um, the management of mental health at work. Um, they didn't all work, but we evaluated them and we did our best and we're doing better um, is actually really powerful and very important when you think about how um, it's likely to be medium and larger businesses that are going to be leading this and smaller businesses, which, of course, there are many more, need to learn from that and, and be shown the way. And following on from that, I just wanted to mention that uh, the work we did with Nottingham Business School at Lloyd's Register Foundation has led to a follow-up piece of work that's doing exactly that. So we're we're taking stock of how organisations have supported organisations during COVID specifically in terms of their mental well-being. And we're looking to see which of those practices are sustainable in the long term and which have worked in order to share that. And we're not alone in doing that type of exercise, but um, but that kind of initiative is out there, which is a really positive step as well. Well, thank you very much to all of you. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for at the moment. But as we go forward and as we emerge from COVID and, and work practices, both where we work and how we work are all very much up for grabs. It seems to me it would be such a good thing if a sort of wind of mental good health was helping the uh, pieces to fall in the right place when we all get back to whatever the new normal is. So for now I'd like to thank today's panel Olivia Swift, Sandra Kerr, Neil Laybourne and Carlo Caponecchia. Please do join us next time for another conversation. You can just search for us at the Global Safety Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you.